The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Monday, October 2nd, 2017 from Slate. It's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. So when a tragedy like this hits, the human mind races for answers. There's so much that's incomprehensible that we as curious members of our species can't really handle it. Law enforcement will soon provide us the who to go with the what. And experts will tell us about the how soon enough. Among the hows, we want to know how he hatch his plan, how he acquire his guns, how he select his target, how he pull off this massacre. Why is the hardest? Over the last 16 years, the why has been fairly circumscribed in America. Is the mass murderer a Muslim terrorist, a white right-wing whack job, or an angry guy with a gun and a grudge? That last explanation is who the shooter is in mass shootings the vast, vast majority of the time. There is, on average, a mass shooting almost every day in this country, and it's usually a guy with a gun and a grudge. Now, it's not quite every day. Out of a seven-day week, six will have a mass shooting on average. I'm using a definition of mass shooting that hues closely to the words mass and shooting. The shooting part simply means that people are shot by a gun. The mass means four or more people are shot, not including the shooter. And to my mind, that's a pretty fair definition. This isn't the FBI's definition of mass shooting or mass killing. They define mass killing as three or more people killed, not including the killer, and they have to be indiscriminately killed. It used to be four or more people killed. It is a pretty narrow definition of mass shooting. That we have to narrow the definition of mass shooting beyond the meaning of mass and shooting tells us something about the phenomenon. When there is a lot of something, we have to narrow the definition so as not to be overwhelmed. When there is a scarcity of something, we use pretty liberal definitions to try to include more things in the category. Examples of that, miracles, superstars, elite quarterbacks, leaders. But with mass shooting, we're strict about how we define it. Otherwise, we would have to acknowledge that we have one almost every day guess what? We have one almost every day. But it's with these horrific, most horrific of examples, with the huge body counts or the notable targets like the shooting of the Republican baseball team, that's when we turn tribal. We ask, what's the motivation of the shooter? It matters so much. If it's a Muslim terrorist, that means one thing. If it's a racist affiliated with a hate group, that means another thing. If the politics of the shooter are different from our own, Well, that's confirmation of what we've been saying all along. But if the shooter's politics are close to our politics, well, then we acknowledge that ideology certainly can be twisted. Now, let's be specific. Let's be honest here. This is a terrible tragedy. But if by the time you hear this, the shooter's motivations are still unknown, let's use this opportunity to ask some questions of ourselves. Let's say it turns out that the shooter is a deranged, unhinged fan of Bernie Sanders or some left-wing cause, like the Steve Scalise shooter was. Will you then say, Bernie created a permission structure, or Bernie fomented anger and that led to this? Or will you say, nutjobs always take the wrong signals. It's like blaming the Beatles for the Manson murders. All right, but what if the shooter was a big fan of Donald Trump? Will you say, all that inevitable rage that he unleashed manifested itself in this follower? Now, I'll pause to ask, or maybe to acknowledge, maybe this isn't the fairest thought experiment, right? If you're 
playing this or resisting playing this in your head, maybe you could say, it's not fair. Look at gun control. Bernie's, he's got that famous D minus rating from the NRA. And at every post-election rally, Trump credited himself with saving the Second Amendment. So, so you can't say it's the same no matter who the shooter followed if we find out that he followed one of these uh, figures or types of political thought. Or maybe you are saying something like bad analogy because Bernie is in general a force for peace. So any violent act said to be inspired by him must be, of course, wrong. But Trump is a force of hate. So a violent act inspired by him is in keeping with his essence. Or maybe, and this is what I think, Horrible wackos are horrible wackos, and they seek out ideologies to pin their horrible wackiness onto. Plus, America is awash with guns. Let's not forget that. So in this moment, when we don't really know about the shooter's motivation, I do think it's a good time to self-reflect on whether you're going to be guided by facts or use the facts to fit your theory. On the show today, I will be joined by Masha Gessen. She wrote a lot of books, a lot of them about Russia, but one of them was about the Boston Marathon bombers. In the immediate aftermath of that, the killers were unknown. The motivations of the killers, however, were guessed about. What we thought about the killers didn't change much from the days after we found out who they were and what their backgrounds were. But in fact, new information came to light and we never really processed that in. And just like with this shooting, we sought to answer the unanswerable question of why. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told uh, an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then, after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash. Because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where uh, he got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. 
Masha Gessen is the author of several, and I mean several books, uh, one every year, it seems. She is recently the author of The Future is History, How Totalitarianism Reclaimed Russia. Before that, The Man Without a Face, The Unlikely Rise of Vladimir Putin. And in there, though, she wrote about the Tsarnaev brothers in a book called The Brothers. And having read that book and having listened to that book, there are resonances there and the coverage of that story with what we're hearing today about this horrible shooting in Las Vegas. So I wanted to ask Masha some questions. Thank you for joining me, Masha. Thank you for having me. In the immediate aftermath of a uh, horrible tragedy, and of course, the alleged, I guess we say, gunman here took his own life. Up in Boston, there was that manhunt. And of course, one of the brothers died, one didn't. But there was such a urge to get as much information as possible. And then after three or four days, most of what was reported gets calcified and solidified. But it's not always accurate. Is that how these things usually go, or at least in the case that you investigated, is that how it went? I think that's that's true. In fact, actually, I, maybe the most interesting case from this perspective is the pulse shooting in, in Florida. Right. We have sort of particular shelves for these kinds of attacks. And you will you will probably notice that I'm trying not to use the word terrorist because right. I don't think it's particularly useful, but it's very difficult to say what kinds of attacks I mean if yes. I'm not using the word terrorist, right? So, but basically, um, there's the sort of terrorist, which, which implies Islamic radical, implies connected to some real or imaginary organization or a real or imaginary connection to, you know, ISIS or Al-Qaeda. That's one shelf. And the sort of the lone wolf white man, who some people would argue also should, uh, you know, should be called a terrorist, I don't actually think so, on the other shelf. And then if there's some complication, we have no idea what to do with it. And that was that was the that was the case with the gunman in Florida, right? Because right. because on the one hand he he made that nine one one call in which he said he was uh, he was a member of ISIS, and then on the other hand that emerged that maybe he was a self hating homosexual. And that was why he did the shooting. And how do you recon- reconcile those? I don't think it's very complicated, right? We just have to kind of sort of give up the categories. Yeah, it doesn't, uh, first of all, specifically about that, they don't seem irreconcilable at all, that both things can certainly be true. Not at all. Yeah, but, yeah. you know, profound misery drives people to yeah. do incredibly stupid and cruel things and to try to attach themselves to something big and glorious. Right. And another case, again, in this in this category, mass shooting category, Columbine, and there's another case where, of course, we have the human need to ask that question and get a satisfactory answer. How did it happen? And the immediate answers were things like bullying and the trench coat mafia. And we probably, most people probably still think that's true. But subsequent reporting shows that it was a Leopold and Loeb situation. And one of those shooters really strung the other one or or influenced the other one. But he was actually quite popular. And there wasn't a lot of bullying going on. So again, we have, we want answers. We take about four days to process the information. And then it's set. And, And there could be problems with that in terms of in your case with the Tsarnaevs, in terms of the trial, but in terms of like understanding human nature and looking out for it the next time. Actually, looking out for it the next time is exactly what drives the process that you're talking about, mm-hmm. right? Because there's a natural human desire to reassure ourselves that it's not going to happen to us. So if you can figure out what happened, again, if you can if you can wrap your mind around it, and this works with any kind of terror, including, you know, state terror, which is something I've written about much more, right? But like, 
during the Soviet state terror, people kept making up fictions about why, you know, their next door neighbor got arrested, why so-and-so got executed. They were guilty of something, maybe not the thing that they were accused of, but something else, right? And and as soon as we stumble on an explanation, however incorrect it actually is, because most of these things actually defy explanation, that's what that's what makes them so terrifying, right? Mm-hmm. As soon as we find an explanation, we set it aside and we're, we're sure it's not going to happen to us. Yeah, and mostly the quality of the explanations is they don't ever change our minds. <laughs> like No matter what the explanation is, oh yeah, that's what I thought all along. An explanation that changes our minds is not a satisfactory explanation. You know, it doesn't, yeah. it doesn't calm us down. So in the Sarnayev case, people always ask you since you wrote the book about them, well, how they either snap or how they go from this normal-seeming kids to terrorists, how they get radicalized. And they're going to be asking that about this guy, too, and you have a good answer for that, which is right. no answer. <laughs> which is no answer, right? You know, we have, in the same way that we have these sort of calming explanations, we have this radicalization narrative, right? And the radicalization narrative serves a very important psychological function, which is that, you know, we imagine that there is something really huge, right, like some great organization that has a very specific process for inducting somebody and then indoctrinating them and then finally, you know, taking them through sort of the ideological process and then finally turning them into a really scary, violent person. fact of the matter is that it's not quite so orderly. It's not linear. A lot of the time, the affiliation with an organization like ISIS is an afterthought. Right? Uh, so the the rage the desire, needs direction in other right, words. Yeah. Right. The rage is there. Yeah. The desire to act is there. Yeah. And then you can pin it on something that's bigger than you, which has a lot of its own advantages of its own, right? But for us, we just have to sort of step back from the from the radicalization explanation. You know, the, the same way that we don't ask, you know, how come most people who have terrible things happen to them, you know, don't murder their relatives. Most abused wives don't murder their husbands. Some do. Most jealous husbands don't murder their cheating wives, but a couple will, right? It doesn't mean that every time there is a case of rage, it leads to violence, but it also doesn't mean that when rage turns violent and absolutely horrifying, it's inexplicable. Yes, because the experts with Sarnayev, probably with this guy, will say, well, here's the shared qualities that he he has with whatever kind of shooter he turns out to be, with the uh, terrorists that the uh, Sarnayevs turned out to be, you know, loners, um felt disaffected, downwardly mobile. You, you, you list these things and, and then you say, whoa, those are warning flags. And there are millions of people like that. That's right. And today on the news, uh, someone helpfully pointed out that 80% of the mass shooters before their mass shooting expressed some version of rage or ideation to someone else. And you, you look at that and you say, oh my God, we could stop them next time. Left unsaid is that probably 80,000 people who expressed ideation or rage never went through with a mass shooting. And that's true, actually, also of extreme ideologies, right? The whole sort of system that the FBI has set up for tracking people who subscribe to extreme ideologies, radical Islam, is useless in very much the same way. Most people who have extreme views, including views that support violence, will never do anything violent in their lives, right? It's not actually a predictor of terrorist behavior. You know, what is a predictor of terrorist behavior? Is domestic violence. Yeah. 
right? With domestic violence, we kind of understand that's escalating violence, and yeah. it can escalate, you know, really radically, like in 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 cases of terrorism, or somewhat less radically, but it will escalate, right? That's actually a very powerful argument for law enforcement intervention in cases of domestic violence. Okay, so you mentioned that people have these this rage, and sometimes they find the ideology that matches up with their rage, and they say, "I did it because of ISIS or whatever." So then, do you think that there's nothing to the argument that? Say, uh, let's be blunt here, President Trump is giving permission structure to rage. On the other hand, we could say, you know, St- people, the alt-right pointed to Steve Scalise's shooter and said, well, the, the left is giving permission to rage. Now, this really is something to reconcile. How do you uh, square the fact that there does seem to be a raising temperature in society with the fact that some people are going to take, you know, any kind of excuse, glom onto it and assign their rage to that? I mean, I think there's actually something going on with Trump that is not necessarily and probably isn't at all connected to this, the, the, uh, the shooting in Las Vegas. Right? The shooting in Las Vegas seems to fall into a basic American pattern of, of mass shootings, which is a peculiarly American problem. Yeah. And that uh, I think it's absurd to argue that it's not connected to the gun culture in this country, right? But I don't know that it's necessarily directly connected to Trump. Right. right. It, it obviously the McDonald's him. shooting preceded Trump. The Lovey's Cafeteria shooting preceded Trump. He was pretty, hosting pretty a reality much. show during Virginia Tech. Agreed. Right. What I think he 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 has done is he's um, he's actually made some motions toward delegating violence, right? And this fits in right. an entirely different pattern of autocratic leaders who delegate sort of extra-legal violence to people who have the opportunity to commit crimes. And what's communicated to them is that there will be perhaps broad impunity or perhaps there will be sort of less scrutiny than there would otherwise be. We've seen that a lot with Putin. You know, most, most of the murders that we think of as political murders that happen under Putin were actually outsourced. You know, they weren't carried out by the Kremlin. They weren't even necessarily ordered by the Kremlin. It was communicated that it is possible to do it. Look at Duterte. He's done the, the, uh, the opposite. And sort of instead of uh, sending out coded messages, he sent out very clear yeah. messages and so basically communicated, you, if you kill people because you believe them to be drug dealers, you will have absolute impunity. Going so far as to claiming to have committed some of these murders or he would say carried out some of these executions himself. And exactly. that might, that, he might be lying about that, by the way. Right. But it communicates that this is a yeah. good thing. It's mm-hmm. a good thing for the, for the country. It has some, you know, it's circumscribed. It's not like any kind of violence that's licensed. But it's a particular kind of violence that uh, that, the, uh, that the leader delegates. So I think that that some of the stuff that, that, that Trump has said sort of in the wake, uh, both actually during his rallies, in the wake of, of Charlottesville, and even I'd say about the NFL, you know, have verged on delegating violence. Mm-hmm. But uh, there are probably points of convergence between that and, uh, and and mass shootings. And of course, what makes it really dangerous is just this sheer number of guns and militia, militia or, like organizations that exist in this country. I mean, because we can go from zeros to six, 60 here really fast with this communication delegating violence, considering that there are armed people out there. Yeah, matching a tinderbox. Wait, so is that the, the idea of delegating violence, which... Literally, I mean, it's a subject of a lawsuit, him saying, I'll, I'll defend you if you rough up one of these protesters, but also is more symbolic. Is that much different from just the simple notion, oh, he riles people up? 
Well, I think it's more specific. Uh, you know, there isn't necessarily a meaningful distinction between rallying people up and, and delegating violence. But I think that when I talk about delegating violence, it's an actual political mechanism. Yeah. Right. It's a political mechanism that's been used by autocratic leaders, certainly for decades, you know, certainly going back to you know the brown shirts. Just naming it that, I think, is, is helpful in terms of analyzing it and and wrapping our minds around, you know, how to resist it. It's easy for us in a democracy to look at an autocracy and say, well, they oppress their people. And therefore, it's easy to imagine that people will actually be affected and enraged and uh, want to lash out. Maybe in a democracy, it seems a lot harder to do, affect a populace so that they're at a point of being enraged or wanting to act out or wanting to lash out. Is it? You know, I think I think that's there's a fuzzier border there than than perhaps we realize, and um, agencies often ceded voluntarily, even in such in extreme situations like in the Soviet Union where there was actual state terror. It would not necessarily have been possible to institute state terror without a social contract, you know, a broad social contract with with society. There was there was resistance, but there was also an incredible amount of support, and an incredible desire to sort of to cede power, right? To cede freedom that, freedom that had become unbearable, to hand it all over to, to a leader. I think we're in a pretty dangerous spot in this country where there's a large number of people who would like to cede agency because life has become so frightening and unpredictable and just difficult. Yeah, and that maybe can apply to no matter what the motivation of any shooter is, just ceding agency. The guy who shot up the uh, congressional Republican baseball game would fall into that category too, even though his politics are opposite of uh, a white nationalist, let's say. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. That's It's a little bit of a logical leap sort of from ceding agency to to actually taking up arms. I yeah. mean, uh, that's kind of claiming extreme agency, but it's also, you know, it's just jumping into the abyss. So in that sense, I guess there's a similarity. Masha Gessen is the author of The Future is History, How Totalitarianism Reclaimed Russia, which we will be talking about in full <laughs> shortly, but not today, because we need to talk about this. Thank you, Masha. Thank you. Hey, and the just live Pesca on the Potomac is happening 7 p.m. on Tuesday, November 28th at the Hamilton Theater in Washington, D.C. For tickets and more information, visit slate.com slash live. Guests include Benjamin Wittes, Alexandra Petri, Chris Malamphy, Perry Bacon, and actress Holly Twyford. And now the spiel. I do not have answers, I freely admit. The FBI doesn't right now. They're working towards it. Congress doesn't. I don't think they'll get there. I would like to take this opportunity, however, to muse upon a few different entities who are out there providing answers or some version thereof. Let's examine the answers they provide. The first is the media. They, we try, we really do try. There's a lot of fake news being generated, churned out by trolls and 4chan message boards. I don't even know who stands to gain from the crazy conspiracy theories that are being invented as we speak. People consciously pointing fingers at the unguilty. I don't know, maybe an Alex Jones type will ride whatever they come up with today into some version of twisted glory. But the real news, all the networks, all the cable networks, minus Fox, and some of Fox, but not all of Fox, but all the big newspapers, including the Wall Street Journal, they're really trying to get answers, but they conduct their investigations according to a script. A script that allows for content, 
but not for all content. They certainly allow for firsthand accounts of victims. The victims often use the phrase, it was surreal. They allow for the voices of former law enforcement experts. And these experts will use jargon that communicates their expertise while at the same time giving the viewer a frisson of authenticity and the excitement that comes with it. Phrases like kill zone or long gun or target acquisition. And they'll show images, most commonly images shot from cell phones of the event. This may be the first mass documented mass shooting where the majority of the footage that I've seen was landscape and not vertical. We as a society cannot enact decent gun control legislation, but we are learning how to visually document the consequences of this inaction. Here was some of the chaos as played on CNN. Now, what you heard was probably shocking. Of course, it was shocking because of the human horror, but familiar. There were the sounds of a shooting. We've seen sounds of shooting and yelling and chaos so many times on TV. But there was an element there in the sound I played that was quite prominent that probably didn't strike you as notable at all. The bleeps. This aired on CNN, and they bleeped the curse words. They bleeped foul language. Foul language of people being shot at by a machine gun. Think about that. Think about how we define indecency. I want to be fair. No one is saying a mass shooting is decent, but we have no real remedy for a mass shooting. But if you were to play the reaction to a mass shooting in an unexpurgated state, a television network does fear the very effective mechanisms that we have to remedy that misdeed. We have FCC fines. We at least have an adherence to standards and practices. And we can imagine consequences from an upset viewer, upset that there was swearing amidst the slaughter. Another clip I would like to play is of uh, Congressman Ruben Kiwin. He represents Nevada's 4th District in the House of Representatives. And today is a very sad day for Nevada. It's a very sad day for Las Vegas. Uh, but if anything good came out of this is that I saw humanity. I saw our community come together. I saw strangers helping strangers and saving lives. Hmm, yes, humanity. Strangers helping strangers. Just like Boston was strong, and after Virginia Tech, the Hokies united, and je suis Charlie. Here's Paul Owens, the opinion page editor of the Orlando Sentinel, reading an editorial that ran in his paper right after the Pulse shooting. Let our community define itself by our unequivocal response. United. We will unite in an affirming bond that is more mighty and enduring than the twisted thoughts of a young man who allegedly unleashed this atrocity. Or the old man in Las Vegas. This is what it takes to unite us. Great. In the face of a bullet, having already been fired from a gun and having ripped through flesh, we want to heal the flesh. Fine. What about beforehand? We certainly can't agree on what should be done about that. Or even if we can agree, poll show Americans really want some better form of gun control, we can't concentrate or pay attention long enough to do anything about it. So here's the deal. We will be appalled at the tragic, yet uninspired to forestall it. We will come together before the bloodstains are scrubbed from the street, but not when a bill comes before a state legislature. 
And we're also told, look, now's the time not to call for better laws or politicize things. It's the time to mourn. Okay, today I mourn for Las Vegas. But today I also call for gun laws. And that's motivated by the mass shooting in Plano, Texas last month that killed nine. There are so many mass shootings that every day can be both a day to mourn the last one and do something about the one before that. So today we can honor the dead in Las Vegas, but also try to do something about the dead in Plano. And when the slaughter in Plano happened, well, then we could have mourned the dead there, but hopefully we would have been acting on the three people who were shot dead in Madison, Maine. And while we mourn those people, we could have centered on the five shot to death in northern New Mexico. And while that mourning went on, we could have tried to enact legislation to prevent the Orlando workplace killing. Not talking about Pulse, talking about the workplace killing of five people. And while that mourning happened, we could have been doing something about the slaughter of eight in Boguachita, Mississippi. And finally, today in Las Vegas, hundreds of people lined up at hospitals and blood banks, and the lines were over three hours long to donate blood to the victims who didn't need the blood. A spokesperson for the hospital said these victims don't need the blood. It's a perfect metaphor. We come together. We unite. We proclaim ourselves strong. We put forth an empty gesture. It's not entirely empty. The hospital spokesman, who said these victims don't need the blood, did encourage the donations because the professionals know that you should prepare for the next emergency when most people will have taken their eye off the ball from the last one. And what I'll say now might sound harsh, but if you're lining up to give blood, and there must be someone or perhaps many people in this category, if you're lining up in Las Vegas to give blood today, but you also give money to the NRA, you are not part of the solution. Quite the opposite. I also saw reports accompanying the hashtag VegasStrong, reports that residents were arriving at the hospital with cases and cases of water. Water for the shooting victims. Or maybe to wash away or drown out what's important. And that's it for today's show. The Gist was produced by Mary Wilson and Dan Schrader. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. We are the gist. Today was a tough day. Tomorrow will be better. Umperu, depperu, duperu, and thanks for listening. <laughs>